Hello and welcome to You're On Crack Mate. This is the place where we talk about movies, TV shows and everything else that takes our fancy with enough detail to make people ask, are you on crack mate? I'm your host Sean Farrick and a very happy new year to you. What better way to start the new year than by taking a deep dive into the fever dream that is, in my opinion, one of the best horror movies of the 1990s. No, I'm not talking about Troll 2. It was just pipped to the post by this film. I am the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. So now I must shed innocent blood. Come with me. Bernard Rose's Candyman, based on the short story The Forbidden by Clive Barker, was and remains one of the most atmospheric, fantastical examples of urban gothic horror to have yet been released. Arriving in 1992, it examines racial violence, the power of myth and storytelling, and the impact of changing narratives. Starring Virginia Madsen, Vanessa Williams, Casey Lemon, Xander Berkeley, and, of course, Tony Todd as the eponymous character, this meditation on legends started off as something very different. Join me as we dive into the nightmare that is Candyman. Before we can discuss Candyman the film, we must look at what inspired it to come to life. You see, the Candyman was not always the demonic stalking figure of Cabrini-Green's whispers and legends. In fact, he started far, far away in another country altogether. Candyman originated in The Forbidden, a short story from horror master author Clive Barker's Books of Blood. This version of the character was both a parallel to, and worlds apart from, Tony Todd's hulking monster of the movie. To understand the change, let's look at the process by which he came to life both times. Clive Barker is one of the undisputed geniuses of the horror genre. Born in 1952, he is the recipient of an Inkpot Award. He's the author of dozens of books, stories and collected works, along with his career as a playwright, producer and director. By the time that Candyman was released in 1992, Barker had already made a name for himself in the film industry. He'd written several films, Underworld and Rawhead Rex, which were received poorly, as well as Nightbreed, which initially found critical panning, though has in years been re-edited and reappraised, becoming a cult classic. He was, however, most famous for the Hellraiser series. He wrote the first three films by the time that Candyman was released, having also directed the first. This new take on body horror, psychological torture and sexual masochism was a look inside Barker's style, offering audiences a peek at what horror could mean to this creator. The iconic Hell Priest, later nicknamed Pinhead in the films, against Barker's wishes, was played by Doug Bradley and was the first of two iconic horror characters that could be credited back to Clive Barker. Before any of this could come to fruition, let us take a trip back to Barker's childhood. In 1956, at just four years of age, he went to see the French stunt performer Léo Valentin with his parents. The Birdman was showcasing what promised to be a dazzling example of aerial wonder before things took a sharp turn. In front of a huge crowd of witnesses, Valentin's stunt suit 
comprising of wooden wings for his Birdman act, snagged on the side of a plane he was to jump out of. Pulled into the air by the sudden wind, he was unable to use these wings. He then attempted to deploy his emergency parachute, though this too failed him, catching in the broken wings. The backup chute also failed. With no lifelines left, Valentin plummeted to the earth. He was instantly killed on impact. Below, wide-eyed, the four-year-old Barker watched the entire tragedy unfold. His father rushed to the scene in an attempt to help the stuntman, though it was already too late. The man would later say that Valentin had made a shape from the flattened grain as he lay with his wings spread wide so that it looked as though an enormous bird had fallen to earth. Despite his mother's urges for him not to look, the image seared itself into Barker's mind. In his words, Valentin's death became a private legend, an image drawn onto the rock of my skull. Barker would incorporate both Valentin and the image of the man falling into many of his works. His series, Books of Blood, from which the story The Forbidden comes, has a tagline which may well be inspired by his father's description of the man's body. Everybody is a book of blood. Whenever we're opened, we're read. There have been several adaptations of some of the stories contained within the books. Book of Blood, released in 2009 and featuring Doug Bradley, is an adaptation of the framing stories of the Book of Blood and On Jerusalem Street. Hulu has released its own adaptation of Books of Blood, while there has also been a film adaptation of The Midnight Meat Train starring Bradley Cooper and Vinnie Jones. The fifth volume of the Books of Blood contains the story The Forbidden, which is the focus and one of the inspirations for Candyman. The Forbidden sees grad student Helen Buchanan studying graffiti in the rundown projects of Liverpool's lower income areas. On Butts Court, she encounters a local woman, Anne Marie, who tells her about the murders that happened with shocking regularity in the area. Helen recounts this to her husband, Trevor, who is apathetic to both Helen's study and the woman's claims. He dares her to return to the area and do some further digging, which Helen does which leads her down the path to encounter the bestial Candyman, a figure who is fed by myth, rumour and word-of-mouth storytelling. The Candyman of Barker's imagination is a wilder, almost feral creation, though his voice and words belie this. His appearance is hairy, with patchwork jacket, sharpened teeth and the hook for a hand which would cross over into the film. However, where the film portrays Candyman as a victim of racial violence, this iteration of the character has nothing to do with that. Butts Court, run down and degraded as it is, stands in for the class divide that Barker wanted to depict. Helen, though invested in the area, is quite clearly not a part of it. When she steps away from the high-rises and the boarded-up homes, she lives a comfortable life, subconsciously looking down on people like Anne-Marie, hidden behind a mask of pity and understanding. Helen inadvertently causes the legend of the Candyman damage when she doubts both his involvement in the death of an old man, along with his very existence. This has disastrous consequences for Anne-Marie, whose son Kerry is murdered by Candyman to keep his story alive. 
This dark and disturbing tale mixes the affluence and ignorance of the middle-class Helen with the horror-baked knowledge of the lower-income class Anne-Marie and other residents of the Spectre Street estate. Even as Carrie's body lies cooling in her own kitchen, Anne-Marie knows something that Helen doesn't. Seeing isn't always believing, while not believing is far more dangerous than anything else. On the day of Carrie's funeral, Helen returns once again to the area. She revisits a broken-down house that contains a mural of Candyman, though she finds it boarded up, with signs of a trapped life within. Believing it to be a wild dog, she leaves, though is drawn to return. The Candyman only appears quite late in the story, which, of course, is the entire point. It is his legend that is passed from person to person, from home to home. Helen, doomed by her own ignorance, couldn't accept the existence of a creature that she hadn't encountered. It becomes her downfall, trapped in the house by the Candyman and the residents of Butts Court. The writing on the wall a phrase that Tony Todd would give immeasurable power in the film, includes the phrase, sweets to the sweet. Now we'll discuss the significance of this a little later. The offer and command, be my victim, appears here in the story as Candyman offers her the glory of immortality. All Helen needs to do is to die. She refuses, with Candyman seemingly accepting her choice, only later, finding herself in the centre of a great bonfire on Guy Fawkes' night, does Helen realise that she has been lied to, coerced, and, as the flames lick her body, murdered, all in the name of keeping the legend of Candyman alive. Clive Barker's Candyman is reminiscent of Christopher Nolan and Heath Ledger's Joker in The Dark Knight. While the Joker offers several conflicting inspirations and origin stories, Barker's Candyman offers none. Both characters affect their stories like nature, tearing through whatever plans and defences the characters had placed in their way. Candyman himself is an allegory for the power of storytelling. Barker said of his inspiration to create the character that his grandmother's stories played a large part in bringing the monster to life. It was about keeping word of mouth going, about inspiring legends to remain. Said Barker, I was writing about the experience of horror. This is why we write those tales, why we hear those tales. The story was about story itself. Released in 1985, The Forbidden would go on to inspire writer and director Bernard Rose to create his own version of The Honey-Tongued Boogeyman, with several changes along the way. English writer and director Bernard Rose took a different approach to depicting the Candyman when he adapted The Forbidden for the big screen. The style of the story, that of urban neglect amid affluence, survives the transition masterfully reworked from the Liverpudlian setting to the high-rise projects of Chicago's Cabrini-Green. Rose took influence from several directions when putting the story together. His early inspirations came from his favourite filmmaker, Nicholas Rogue. Don't Look Now is considered not just by Rose, but by reams of audience-goers alike, as one of the greatest horror movies of the 20th century. Rogue directed Donald Sutherland in a story that depicts grief, the banality of putting the pieces back together after a tragedy, and the mystic fantasy of Sutherland's character, John Baxter's clairvoyance. The film, set in Venice for the most part, 
shows the man stubbornly refuse to believe the signs around him, ignoring and disregarding them, until at last they spell his own doom. This theme is echoed in Helen's disregard of the Candyman legend, leading to her fateful encounter with Todd's master villain. Along with the visual and thematic influence from Rogue, Rose took inspiration from other avenues as well. One was journalist Steve Bagheera, who penned two articles in the 80s about a spate of crimes Chicago's Grace Abbott Holmes, a project not dissimilar to Cabrini Green. But before we dive into that story and the tragedy that lies at the centre of Rose's film, what exactly are Grace Abbott Holmes and Cabrini Green? Formed in 1937, the Chicago Housing Authority, or CHA, is a municipal corporation that oversees public housing in the city of Chicago. The ABLA Homes, an acronym derived from the names of the different projects, Jane Adams Homes, Robert Brooks Homes, Loomis Courts and Grace Abbott Homes, began construction in 1938, with the Grace Abbott Homes reaching completion in 1955. It was in the Abbott Homes that the inspiration behind one of the more tragic elements of Rose's Candyman occurred. The housing projects were designed by the city's aldermen and mayors to bring affordable housing to those that needed it most. On paper, they would be available to everyone who applied, though in practice they quickly became dominated by black American tenants, with an enormous percentage of them being given to single mother families. The interiors of the high-rise buildings were grim, almost beyond belief. The hallways were in a state of permanent darkness, where there was no windows to boast of. The stairwells were often blocked and boarded, while the bulbs that dotted the many light fixtures were in an almost constant state of need, with the custodial staff beleaguered in their attempts to stay on top of repairs. The projects may have, in their infancy, been designed with good intentions, but by the time of the tragedy that inspired Rose, they were places of danger, sadness and neglect. Ruthie Mae McCoy was a single mother and grandmother living alone on the 11th floor of one of Abbott Holmes' high-rises. She'd been placed there by the CHA after her basement apartment had flooded, leading her to apply for emergency housing. She specifically requested not to be placed in a high-rise, as the very thought of them terrified her. Crime was rampant in the ABLA projects, with gangs roaming the streets and the buildings, intimidating everyone and everything. A particularly large gang, the Paymasters, were often seen walking around decked with jewellery, carrying ghetto blasters and crying, We got what you want, we got what you need. Beatings, shootings and murders were commonplace. While the film is set in Cabrini Green, a larger project in Chicago, the ABLA boasted a large population, one ravaged by crime. In Candyman, Helen Lyle becomes aware of a story in the papers entitled Who Killed Ruthie Jean? The murder occurs in a rundown apartment, with the killers apparently having come through the bathroom cabinet mirrors. While this may have inspired the rhyme that Helen speaks, calling Candyman's name five times in a mirror, it is actually based in fact. On the night of April 22nd, 1987, Ruthie Mae McCoy was murdered in her apartment when two assailants entered via the bathroom cabinet mirror. The actual event may have been inspiration enough, but Rose was intrigued enough to look deeper. He turned to Bagheera's article, They Came In Through the Bathroom Mirror, published in the Chicago Reader in 1987. Bagheera offers a deeper insight into the slaying than the simple snippets that the mainstream media gave. McCoy, aged 52 at the time of her death, was a tragic figure. 
She'd struggled with mental illness since her 20s, while also raising a child, Vernita, alone. When her daughter fell on hard times, including a short stint in prison, McCoy took to caring for her grandchild as well. At all times, the reality of her situation was never lost on her. She visited Mount Sinai Hospital Community Psychiatric Centre for treatment, dealing primarily with Sandy Siegel, the clinical coordinator. Siegel described McCoy as a woman who had an extremely tough life, but by April of 1987, was beginning to improve her lot. Her chief concern, according to Siegel, was to escape from Abbott home. McCoy's murder barely made a ripple in the media at the time. The circumstances were brutal. She was shot four times and left to die. Yet there is a small chance that her death was avoidable. She had, three months prior to the event, seen her brother, Willie McCoy, who at the time had helped her to board up the loose bathroom cabinet. On the night of her death, she had enough warning to call the police, describing exactly what she was hearing, noises and scuffling coming from the bathroom, which inspired a squad to be sent over. They never entered her apartment. They knocked, receiving no answer. In all likelihood, McCoy had been shot by the time they arrived, with no one answering, and the CHA janitor on duty advising them against breaking the door down for fear of a potential lawsuit, they left. It would take a further two days for McCoy's body to be found, by which stage she was long beyond any form of help. While the defendants, two young males from the ABLA, were caught, barely a whisper of her death was reported. To put it plainly, there were so many beatings, muggings and indeed killings in the projects that it really wasn't news anymore. Nobody really cared. Candyman, huh? Everybody's scared of him once it get dark. He live over at Cabrini, my friend told me about it. I live on the south side, so I don't know too much about it, but my friend, she know all about it. Her cousin live at Cabrini. They say he killed the lady. Cabrini Green is the project in which Bernard Rose's Candyman film is set. Thematically, it is similar to Butts Court of Barker's original story, the CHA had intended the project to be a symbol of urban renewal, located on a patch of land that had once housed a shantytown nicknamed Little Hell, a largely Irish-populated region named for the flames and pollution from nearby factories. However, the area, much like Abbott Homes and the rest of the ABLA projects, fell into disrepair and neglect as the years went on. While there were smaller row houses, the preferable choice for living quarters were available, Cabrini Green boasted high-rises as well, it is in these high-rise buildings that the lair of the Candyman exists. Bernard Rose explained why he chose Cabrini Green specifically while discussing the making of the film at a fan expo. He described the high-rises as being half-operational, owing to the fact that everything above the 11th floors was blocked off for fears that snipers would set up shop on the roofs of these buildings. Tellingly, Ruthie Jean and Anne-Marie both live on the 11th floor of their building, when one is aware of the reality of Cabrini's high-rises, one begins to understand that these women are closer to danger than they ever realised. Rose does go on to describe stories of how the murderers came through the walls of the buildings. He's both referring to Ruthie May's murder here, and stories of people who live in the spaces above the 11th floor in Cabrini Green. He described, in detail, the stories of police officers called to a woman's apartment owing to the fact that there was a torrent of blood raining down from her ceiling. The police entered the apartment above, discovering the mutilated remains of a man's genitals on the floor. They did not find an accompanying body. 
entering the bathroom, they discovered the mirror to have been removed, and on the other side, they found another apartment covered in blood, another set of genitals, and another body conspicuous only in its absence. Whether these actual events ever happened or not, it was certainly not uncommon in Cabrini Green or any other of the high-rises for apartment spaces to be commandeered by gangs and criminals, serving as bases and lairs, making it an easy hiding spot when the need arose. It was here, in the apartments above Ruthie Jean and Anne-Marie, that the Candyman held his lair, waiting only to be called again. Candyman was released in 1992, three years before demolition began on the high-rises in Cabrini Green. By the time that Candyman 2021 was released, the area had become gentrified. This change in the area forms as much a part of the newer film as the decay formed a part of the original. Now, with the background and setting to Candyman established, let us look at the tragic tale of Daniel Robitaille. He had a prodigious talent as an artist, that he was commissioned by a wealthy landowner to capture his daughter's virginal beauty. Well, of course, they fell deeply in love and she became pregnant. They chased Candyman through the town to Cabrini Green, where they proceeded to saw off his right hand with a rusty blade. And no one came to his aid. But this was just the beginning of his ordeal. Nearby, there was an apiary. Dozens of hives filled with hungry bees. They smashed the hives and stole the honeycomb and smeared it over his prone, naked body. Candyman was stung to death by the bees. Perhaps the most surprising aspect of the film for newcomers is that Candyman is very much a tragedy, as well as being one of the most gothic horrors of the 1990s. Though the titular villain would not receive his name in life until the sequel, Candyman, Farewell to the Flesh, the story of his demise and brutal torture is laid out for Helen Lyle and the audience to make their own judgments on in this first film. Therein lies one of the many differences between Rose's Candyman and Barker's. In The Forbidden, there is no origin story, no tragedy, no tale of an artist destroyed. In Candyman, there is a simmering rage born on the wings of vengeance that permeates every iota of action. While the victims of Barker's creation serve only to keep the legend of Candyman alive, Rose's monster kills and kidnaps so that the promise of eternal justice will never be forgotten. With the setting for the film now secured in Chicago, Rose set about casting the film. First, the titular character needed a form. Eddie Murphy, who at the time was near the height of his stardom, was both considered and disregarded for the role. His asking price was almost double the film's entire $8 million budget, which took him instantly out of the running. Added to this, he had yet to portray a villainous character. For all intents and purposes, there was a real risk in casting Axel Foley as the ghost of vengeance. With Murphy a non-starter, Tony Todd had the opportunity to take on the part. He had campaigned hard for the role, as Rose's script had garnered a lot of interest with Hollywood casting agencies. He was a good fit for the part. Todd is six foot five and was a powerfully built man. Added to this was the deeply resonant voice that you heard at the start of this podcast. For his part, not only was he impressed with the script, but he was deeply impressed with Rose, Tony Richards, the director of photography, Philip Glass, who composed the score, and finally, 
Barker and Virginia Madsen who would land the role of Helen Lyle. The imagery in the script, that of Candyman adorned with bees and a hooked hand, was another element that drew Todd to the role. He knew that something like this hadn't been done before, which would give him the chance, in his own words, to find his own personal Phantom of the Opera. Todd was cast, and the second iconic horror character from Barker's repertoire was born. Helen. Be my victim. For the role of Helen Lyle, British actor Alexandra Pig was cast. In fact, it was she who brought the Forbidden to Rose in the first place. They were, at the time, a married couple. She had appeared in the soap opera Brookside, along with several movies, before Candyman went into production. However, she discovered that she was pregnant just as things were gearing up. Virginia Madsen was a close friend of both hers and Rose. Though she desperately wanted the role of Helen, she had at one point been cast as Bernadette before the decision to make the character African-American took her out of the running, she had conflicted feelings about taking on the part. It was Peake who convinced her to do it, maintaining that she couldn't bear the idea of someone else taking the role away from her. With Madsen now confirmed, she dove into the role of Helen with gusto. While there was much crossover between Helen Buchanan and Helen Lyle, ultimately Lyle is the stronger of the two characters. In the story, Buchanan's final act is an attempt to expose what she believes to be a conspiracy centering on Candyman, while Lyle is under no illusion, past a certain point, that Candyman is very, very real. In Madsen's opinion, what made Lyle different from many of the blonde heroines that had come before is that there is agency to her. She's not simply running up the stairs, away from the attacker, when that path spelled certain doom. While Candyman gaslights her toward her fate, she actively does her best to fight him and save baby Anthony. In reality, however, the locale for Candyman and Helen's battle was almost as dangerous as the monster himself. Rose described filming in Cabrini Green as both difficult and hostile, with Plaincold's policemen required to escort the film crew. Permission had to be sought from some of the locals for them to film, which resulted in several of the extras in the movie being portrayed by actual residents of the project. However, for the bulk of the film, Candyman was filmed on sound stages in Los Angeles. This made as much sense logistically as it did for the safety of the crew. Rose, Todd, Casey Lemons and Madsen filmed for roughly a week on location. Madsen recalled the feeling of both confidence and unease as she and Lemons drove up to the high-rise. In the film, Helen has no fears, while Bernadette is acutely aware of the threat around them. This threat, far from being a demonic and spectral figure of vengeance, is actually the roaming gangs that fill every corner of the neighbourhood. Of course, for Madsen, there were other filming concerns that had to be taken into consideration as well. In a retrospective interview as the film neared its 20th birthday, she recalled struggling a little with director Rose. He didn't believe that she was allergic to bees, while she maintained that she was. She went to a doctor to have this confirmed, though this only inspired Rose to speak to bee handler Norman Gary, the man responsible for the bees in My Girl, fried green tomatoes, and, perhaps a little worryingly, the deadly bees, and asking him for a workaround. The iconic imagery of the bee-covered Candyman is something that has lasted the three decades of the film's lifetime, though it would not be fair to discount the image of Madsen covered in those same insects. When Helen and Candyman face off in his lair, their bargain is sealed with the honeyed kiss of hundreds of bees crawling all over the pair of them. 
This was shot and filmed long before CGI had progressed to a point where it could be pulled off convincingly. Baby bees were used, and though they could still sting, their venom was far less developed than their adult counterparts. This was good news for Madsen, though there was no one on set who didn't receive at least one sting in the course of filming. She described the intensity of having to remain still and calm, covered in the swarm, trying not to swat at them, an action that she had been assured would be as far from a good idea as it was possible to get. Todd, for his part, took a clever route with these scenes. Armed only with a dental dam to prevent any sliding down his throat, his mouth was filled with the insects as he plants his fateful kiss on Helen. Todd negotiated a $1,000 bonus for every sting that he received. The number, he later confessed, was 23 by the time the film wrapped production. He may have suffered for his art, but he was savvy enough to be well paid. The power of mysticism plays a key role in Candyman. As he speaks to Helen, she's entranced by him, losing herself. This was quite a real reaction. Rose was emphatic that he did not want Helen to begin screaming the moment she saw the Candyman. As he said, the sound of a scream is both horrible and off-putting, often breaking the mood that the scenes are trying to create. So he and Madsen took another route. Together they visited a hypnotist, who succeeded in putting Madsen into a trance. While under, Rose was given a trigger word that would bring this state back whenever the need arose. A little dubious, he later tested this, discovering that it worked 100%. In the scenes where Helen encounters Candyman, the parking lot, her apartment, the psychiatric ward, Madsen is in a trance state. You can spot this most clearly in her eyes, which are a little red, a little out of focus and unblinking. Rather than the terror that Candyman inspires in others, Madsen portrayed Lyle as being completely overwhelmed by him, drawn to his power, unable to look away. This continued while filming, until a day came where Madsen spent so much time under that she was unable to recall much of that day's filming. At this point, confident enough in the mood that she needed to portray, and sufficiently frustrated, she gave Rose a friendly warning not to approach her for hypnotism again. Now... With the behind-the-scenes tricks outlined, our next question is, why does Helen Lyle fall foul of the Candyman in Cabrini Green? What is it that she does that, though unintentional on her part, leads to so much death and mayhem by the story's close? Do I know you? No. No. But you doubted me. The police responsible for Cabrini Green's security have long been aware of a gang named the Overlords, in fact, they believe the Overlords to be responsible for the murder of Ruthie Jean, along with many others. They have no interest in stories of the Boogeyman, so they pounce on Helen's story after she's attacked. A young boy, Jake, tells her the story of a boy who was maimed by Candyman. While playing alone in a public restroom, the boy's genitals were torn from him, leaving him a bleeding, crying mess on the floor. As Jake says, can't fix that. Better off dead. Helen... Horrified but fascinated by this, asks Jake to show her where the boy was found. Despite some initial reluctance, Jake takes her to the restroom. Here, the phrase, sweets to the sweet, is scrawled on the wall. As mentioned earlier, this appeared in the original story as well. The quote is from Hamlet, Act 5, Scene 1, spoken by Gertrude as she places flowers on Ophelia's deathbed. The full quote goes thus. Sweets to the sweet, farewell. I hoped thou shouldst have been my Hamlet's wife. I thought thy bride bed would have been decked, sweet maid, 
and not have strewed thy grave. These sweets are the bouquets whose entire meaning has been transformed in death. In the context of Candyman, the idea that something so teeming with life should adorn a locale so teeming with destruction plays into the power of the monster. Here, a young boy is mutilated to continue the legend of Candyman. There's no mercy in this scene, only the horror of the pain Candyman both feels and deals. His mantle is stolen by the overlords as they appear in the bathroom stall behind Helen. When asked if it is indeed Candyman she's looking for, their leader produces a hook and proceeds to beat her senseless, leaving her bloodied and crying on the floor. The police then use her as a jumping off point to go after the gang, which feeds into the narrative that locals simply aren't newsworthy enough to warrant enough attention, while also serving as a scathing critique of the reality of Cabrini Green and the projects in general. The murders were always happening, but it took the violent assault of a white woman for the police to actually do anything. She fingers the man responsible, confident now that the Candyman stories she had been hearing were simply modern folklore and that he is no more real than any other fairy tale demon. She passes this along to Jake, who believes her, losing his belief in Candyman. Relieved, she goes back to normal life, leading to a fateful meeting in a parking garage. Barker's Candyman proves his existence with the brutal murder of Anne-Marie's child, Kerry. Rose's Candyman places the responsibility on Helen's shoulders, legally speaking. While she is fingered as the one responsible for the death of Anne-Marie's dog and the kidnap of baby Anthony, the residents of Cabrini-Green know exactly who is responsible. As Candyman calls them himself, they are his congregation. This, above all else, encapsulates the original theme of Barker's short story. The memories and the deeds of the past live on in the telling of them, even if this version of the story takes it quite literally. Candyman is rumour and whisper, a shadow made flesh, who exists as long as people believe in him. Therein lies an issue with the central theme of the film. Had everyone simply stopped believing, what then becomes of Candyman? Helen Accused of crimes she hasn't committed, escapes her confines thanks to the intervention, ironically, of Candyman himself. She traces her steps back to Cabrini Green, discovering at last his lair, located in the disused floors above the 11th storey of the high-rise. To discover his temple, Helen crawls through those same broken cabinets that played such an important role in real life. She emerges through a mural of Candyman, his mouth open in a silent scream, this is lifted directly from the short story, adapted to fit the image of Todd's character. She continues on, passing shrines to the monster, discovering him sleeping on an altar. What follows is the infamous bee scene, though they discuss the power of myth and its destruction here. Candyman accuses her of stealing his congregation, thus weakening his power. Is this an admission that, without the belief of the residents of Cabrini Green, he would simply cease to exist? It's a question that neither the film nor the story manages to answer. Candyman is both flesh and he isn't. The residents both fear him and attempt to ignore his name. By the film's close, the entirety of the residents, the congregation, turn up to pay tribute to Helen herself. This leads to one of the more outlandish scenes in the film, the final one to be exact. Trevor, played by Xander Berkeley, is a useless partner, both in the story and in the film. In both, 
He's unfaithful to Helen, depicted best when he's not at home to accept her one phone call from jail, despite it being close to 3am. His fate differs from story to script. In The Forbidden, he shows enough concern for Helen to arrive in Butt's court, unaware that the bonfire raging before him contains his wife. In the film, Helen manages to escape the fire long enough to save baby Anthony, but succumbs to her wounds. Trevor is not present for the latter. He does, however, seem to feel guilt over his actions. In the last moments of Candyman, he speaks Helen's name five times in the mirror. Much like the avenging Candyman before her, she appears to him holding the hook that Jake had tossed into her grave and guts the man from groin to gullet. Between Trevor and Bernadette, who was earlier killed by Candyman, these moments are the closest that the film veers towards slasher, away from the gothic urban horror of the rest of the piece. It's a fine line, threatening to derail the mood of the movie. In fact, this became a particular issue with the film's composer, Philip Glass. It Was Always You, Helen, is one of the truly great horror movie themes in cinema. It's a fairly simple piano piece, remixed with organ and choral tidings as well. While a soundtrack did eventually become available, Glass was less than pleased with the finished movie. He felt that he had been approached by Rose and the studio to score a low-budget independent movie. His respect for both Rose and Barker, coupled with his interest in Rose's paper house and Barker's The Forbidden, led to his agreeing to come on board. He felt, though, that over the course of filming, Rose's handling of the project dissatisfied the studio sufficiently for them to demand an increase in gore. Bernadette, though her death is off-screen, is shown in her corpse state, and it is, to be fair, little odd. She has been gutted, but the makeup and effects leave a little to be desired. Trevor's death is much more overt, with his screams and Helen's presence tearing through. Glass was not a fan. He felt that he'd been manipulated into scoring a low-budget slasher film, and that his ambivalence toward it meant that for a very long time there was no soundtrack release. He did give permission for his score to be used in the sequel, even going so far as to contribute some new arrangements, but that was it. In 2001, there was enough demand for him to relent. He reworked his compositions into a soundtrack suite, and a limited run of The Music of Candyman was released. Candyman was released in 1992, with initial reviews coming in as middling to positive. It spawned two quick sequels, Candyman Farewell to the Flesh in 1995 and Candyman Day of the Dead in 1999. While neither film reaches anything like the height and tone of the original, Farewell to the Flesh did at least make a serious effort to be a worthy successor. Rose had originally come up with ideas for a prequel film, along with other story ideas that saw Candyman and Helen falling in love. He was not asked to return, nor too was Virginia Madsen. She was highly critical of the direction in which Candyman's character was taken, specifically retconning his backstory to make him a slave himself, rather than the educated free man that he had been in the original. Tony Todd, thankfully, remained in the role for both films, while the quality of the pieces surrounding him were questionable at best, his portrayal of Daniel Robitaille was never in question. So, when it was announced that another film, 
Nia DaCosta's Candyman, released in 2021, would recast the character, the news was met with trepidation. Todd himself was warm about the announcement, wishing everyone Godspeed. Yahya Abdul-Mateen II was given the lead role in the movie, which would become a direct sequel to the original. It did, however, come with a very clever twist. Candyman 2021 also takes place in Cabrini-Green. This story is very much a sequel to Rose's interpretation of the character, as opposed to Barker's. DaCosta's film deals with the issues of racial violence, gentrification and loss of identity, as well as the horror of the legend of Candyman. Cabrini-Green plays almost as much a part in this film as it did in the original, though it has gone through a fundamental shift in the years between. Starting in 1995, the high-rises of the project were slated for demolition. The years of neglect, built-up refuse and overwhelming crime statistics would have been enough, but urban renewal saw an influx of investment into the area. The high-rises were torn down, with demolition reaching completion in 2002. Since then, new, modern homes have been built on the site, though the row houses remained. These would play a role in DaCosta's film. The film both retcons Candyman and adds to the lore. Rather than a single man, Daniel Robitaille, responsible for the legend of Candyman, becomes a moniker that is passed from victim to victim of racial-based violence. For much of this film's runtime, the titular villain is named Sherman Fields, a man who was brutally murdered by the police. While the film is a little bit mixed, it is overall a powerful statement on both the rise of and constancy of police-on-black violence in the United States. The transient nature of the Candyman title allows Michael Hargrove, who plays Fields, Mateen and Tony Todd all to play Candyman at various points of the film. Though relegated to a single line in the final moment of the film, Robotile does indeed rise again. Though he may now share the title, he is still very much present in this modern age. Tell everyone. Candyman remains an essential moment in horror cinema. It took an urban setting and transformed it into gothic. It took gangland violence and gave it a darker mysticism. It took class divide and tore the seams away, thrusting those who might never normally come into contact into the same space. Madsen, interviewed years later, says that she is delighted that she got the chance to appear, relishing the fact that she has her very own Halloween movie. Every year someone new discovers Candyman, and that has helped to keep the spirit for her alive. Tony Todd, though already a prolific stage and screen actor both before and after the release of the film, was forever changed. Now, it's his best-known role, thanks to every element, from voice, to size, to costume, to setting. We may never see a full film with his robotile in the lead again, but if nothing else, 1992's Candyman is a terrifying peek at a world we fear to explore. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this piece on Clive Barker and Bernard Rose's Candyman. My sincere thanks to patrons Albert Hogan, Pranakasha Productions, John Preeper, Stephen Leninsky, Lionel L, Alan Oldshark, Sarah Davis and Dan Decker. If you would like to become a patron, I'll include the link below. For as little as $5 a month, you can stay on top of all of the plans for 2022, the film slated to be explored, and much, much more. You can support the podcast by following at Pod on Twitter, along with at Sean Ferrick as well. 
please like, share and subscribe. And tell your friends, there's a lot coming this year, so let's spread the net wide. Please enjoy a little snippet of the film that's coming up next. In the meantime, this has been your own crackmate. I have been Sean Ferrick. Stay safe, look after your friends and family, and take care. Thanks. Get out. Sorry, man. Okay. Get out! Yo! 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 Chill, man. Get out! Chill! Get out!